I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This episode is all about Jane Boleyn and the rethinking of her legacy. Before we get started, though, your reminder about TudorCon. It's about five months away. Time to start planning your trip to Lancaster, PA to meet with other Tudor lovers for three days of learning and feasting and new friendships. I'm updating the website with all of the speaker topics this week, so if you were waiting to decide to come based on the topics being discussed, this would be your opportunity to figure that out. englandcast.com slash TudorCon for all of the details. Again, englandcast.com slash TudorCon. So now let's talk about Jane Boleyn, the way she had been seen and the way we are starting to view her now. Jane Boleyn, also known as the Viscountess Rochford, wife of George Boleyn, sister-in-law to the ill-fated Anne Boleyn, has long been maligned by history. She's often portrayed as a cold and calculating figure who played a role in the demise of her husband and sister-in-law, and her reputation has been marred by sensationalized accounts and inaccurate portrayals. However, there's been recent research in the last 10 or 15 years by historians like Julia Fox, there's been historical fiction by Adrian Dillard, who is speaking at TudorCon, which has challenged the traditional narrative surrounding Jane Boleyn, providing a more nuanced understanding of her life and her actions. This episode will explore the rethinking of Jane's reputation and her involvement in the events leading to the fall of the Boleyns. For centuries, Jane Boleyn's name has been synonymous with betrayal and treachery. Her reputation largely stems from her alleged involvement in the downfalls of her husband, George, and her sister-in-law, Anne. The most persistent accusation is that Jane provided damning evidence against her husband and Anne, leading to their executions on charges of adultery, incest, and treason. This portrayal of Jane as a conniving, vindictive woman has persisted in both pop culture and historical accounts. In recent years, though, historians have begun to challenge the traditional narrative surrounding Jane. Julia Fox wrote her biography, Jane Boleyn, The True Story of the Infamous Lady Rochford, in 2007, and she argued that much of the traditional narrative has been constructed on hearsay and conjecture. She scrutinized the primary sources and reevaluated Jane's role in the events leading to the Boleyn's downfall. She posits that Jane was not the architect of their doom, but rather a woman caught up in the dangerous politics of the Tudor court. Similarly, Adrian Dillard's work, The Raven's Widow, a novel of Jane Boleyn from 2017, offered a fictionalized account of Jane's life that, while not strictly historical, is grounded in her rigorous research. 
She aimed to provide a more sympathetic portrayal of Jane, allowing readers to gain a deeper understanding of her motivations and complex world in which she lived. One of the aspects of Jane's story that both Fox and Dillard focus on is her marriage to George Boleyn. While traditionally portrayed as a loveless and bitter union, both historians argue that there is insufficient evidence to support such claims. Instead, they present the possibility that the couple's relationship was more complex and nuanced than previously believed, with political and personal factors influencing their actions. Another area of recent rethinking is her involvement in the accusations against Anne and George. Historians have been questioning the extent to which Jane was responsible for their downfall, pointing out the lack of concrete evidence supporting the claims that she provided incriminating information. They argue that Jane may have been coerced or manipulated by powerful figures at court, such as Thomas Cromwell, into providing testimony that suited their purposes. So let's look first at her relationship with Anne Boleyn. Of course, in pop culture, it's been depicted as spiteful. She's been envious, a conspirator, and instrumental in the downfall of Anne. This supposed act of betrayal allegedly was fueled by her dislike for George and her jealousy over his close relationship with Anne, and that has marred Jane's reputation for centuries. One Elizabethan writer described her as a wicked wife, accuser of her own husband, even to the seeking of his own blood, who acted more to be rid of him than of true ground against him. In addition to the work by Fox and Dillard, there's also a 2022 book by Sylvia Barber Soberton that adds to the evidence supporting Jane using archival records to argue that Anne and her sister-in-law were closer than previously believed. One of the main arguments that people who support the vindictive view of Jane use is a document from October 1535, in which a French ambassador wrote about a great troop of citizens' wives and others, unknown to their husbands, who presented themselves to Mary, Henry's only surviving child from his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon, weeping and crying that she was princess notwithstanding all that had been done. The ambassador continued, Some of them, the chiefest, were placed in the Tower of London, constantly persisting in their opinion. During this period, Henry and his daughter Mary were embroiled in this power struggle, with Mary refusing to recognize either the annulment of her parents' marriage or the king's new position of the head of Church of England and, of course, Anne Boleyn. She was a devout Catholic, and she found herself removed from the line of succession following the birth of Princess Elizabeth. Previously known as Princess Mary, she was now referred to simply as the Lady Mary. Many of the English people saw Anne as a controversial figure who usurped the rightful queen's position. Even in 1535, over two years into her reign as queen, she remained very disliked, primarily due to her harsh treatment of Catherine and Mary, both of whom had extensive public support. Detractors of Jane often identify her and Catherine Broughton, wife of Anne's half-uncle William, as members of the group imprisoned for their public demonstration in support of Mary. This claim was first made by Anne's 19th century biographer Paul Friedman, based on a note in the margins of the ambassador's account that mentions Milieu de Rochefort et Milieu de Guillaume, French for My Lord Rochford and My Lord William. Jane belonged to a Catholic family, while the Boleyns were, of course, strong advocates of religious reform. It's possible that Jane and her relatives may have resented the religious turmoil caused by Anne's marriage to Henry. In addition to separating from the Catholic Church, 
The king, of course, famously ordered the executions of Bishop Fisher and Thomas More, who were very well respected and well liked. There was also the incidents of like the Charterhouse monks. There were a lot of public punishments during this time for people who didn't accept the new status quo. If you were looking to find a motive for Jane to give testimony against Anne and her husband, this incident would provide it if it was true, especially if she had spent time in prison for her role in the demonstration. However, even if Jane disapproved of the new reforms, she probably wasn't among the women who presented themselves to Mary. As Silverton argues in Ladies in Waiting, the women who served Anne Boleyn, the marginalia clearly names men, not women, possibly indicating that George Boleyn and William Howard were tasked to imprison the ringleaders, not that their wives took part in the demonstrations. Importantly, the historian adds that Catherine Broughton couldn't have been present because she died on April 23, 1535, and William only remarried in June 1536 after Anne's execution, meaning he had no wife at the time of this gathering. According to Silverton, the erroneous belief that Jane accused her husband stems from a myth their marriage was unhappy, which was a claim supported by rumors of his reputation as a womanizer and Rita Warnick's suggestion that he was either bisexual or possibly gay. This, of course, made it into the Tudors and into pop culture. But in reality, as all of the recent historians point out, very little is known about her relationship with George. She may have resented his extramarital affairs, which were very common for noblemen. It wasn't unusual. And one contemporary source does mention that she bore the name of an honest and chaste wife. Also, as Adrian Dillard points out, when George was imprisoned in the Tower in May 1536, Jane was the only one to send him a comforting letter asking how he did and promising to humbly make suit onto the King's Highness on his behalf. And George responded that he wished to give her thanks. As Fox explained in Jane Boleyn, the true story of the infamous Lady Rochford, Jane gained nothing but advantages from her marriage, achieving status as the Queen's sister-in-law, and living in unrestrained luxury. She had little motivation to accuse her husband of terrible crimes since it would negatively affect her own standing at court. And apparently she only first learned about the charges against her family when George was arrested and she herself was summoned for questioning. The Boleyn family's downfall was fast and it was carefully and meticulously planned. Thomas Cromwell had schemed to end Henry's second marriage and to clear the path for him to marry Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour, of course, had this demure personality that was totally opposite to Anne Boleyn, and they also hoped that she would provide a male heir. Cromwell interrogated any courtiers who may have witnessed the Queen's alleged indiscretions, including her sister-in-law and other ladies-in-waiting. Julia Fox wrote, The arrests had been so sudden and unexpected that there was no time to separate out what testimony might be damning, what could be twisted to become so, or what could only be innocuous no matter what the interpretation. During George's trial, Thomas Cromwell used a remark made by Anne during her struggle with fertility, and also which Jane had brought up apparently during painstaking questioning. And this is the famous scene where George was given a piece of paper and asked to answer just yes or no to the question. But instead, he chose to read the note aloud, repeating Anne's supposed observation that Henry was not skillful in copulating with a woman and had neither virtue nor potency. And of course, this was seen as a public slight on Henry's prowess. George, Anne, and the four men accused with them were found guilty of adultery, 
And of course, for George and Anne, they were found guilty of incest. The men were beheaded on May 17th and Anne on May 19th. Today, historians generally concur that the charges against Anne and her supposed lovers were fabricated by Cromwell to ensure that the king was free to marry Jane Seymour. Contrary to popular belief, no contemporary sources named Jane in their lists of George and Anne's accusers. It would be hard to imagine George's wife making these kind of public accusations against him and not have it be used in his trial and not have it be written down in any of the contemporary evidence or accounts. Jane, of course, saw her own downfall because of her relationship with Catherine Howard, Henry's fifth wife, whom he married in 1540, just after the execution of Thomas Cromwell, ironically. Henry was 49, Catherine was still a teenager. For reasons unknown, Jane assisted Catherine in arranging secret meetings with the handsome Thomas Culpepper. This was an adulterous affair that would ultimately lead to the executions of all three. There are lots of theories about why Jane got involved with this. Some people say she agreed to help Catherine once, and then she found herself on this like slippery slope with only one outcome. That's what Julia Fox said. Lacey Baldwin-Smith calls her an agent provocateur and pathological meddler. Her reputation fell during the end of her life, of course, but only after her death did her name become synonymous with betrayal. In the 1576 edition of John Fox's Acts and Monuments, which documented the Protestant martyrs burned during Mary's reign, there's a marginalia note that says it is reported that some of this Lady Rochford forged a false letter against her husband and Queen Anne, her sister, by which they were both cast away, which if it be so, the judgment of God is here to be marked. A few decades later, George Wyatt, the grandson of the Tudor poet Thomas Wyatt, who may have had a romantic relationship with Anne before her marriage to Henry, wrote a biography of Anne in which he also criticized Jane. Wyatt supposedly claimed that he'd received firsthand insights from the Queen's former lady-in-waiting, who was later mistakenly identified as one Anne Gainsford. But Anne Gainsford couldn't have been Wyatt's informant because she passed away at least five years before Wyatt was born. Wyatt and later historians' blaming of Jane began during the reign of Elizabeth I, Anne's daughter. Elizabeth's mother was a Protestant icon by that time, and people thought that she must have been innocent of all of the charges against her, and it was believed that the Queen's father would not have ordered Anne's execution unless he had thought her guilty, because of course Elizabeth didn't want to think about her father having done something like that. So they conveniently ignored Anne's passion for Jane Seymour, and it was easy to suggest that the king had been told lies. And the main person doing the lying was Jane, because stories about spiteful women seem to always be popular. Then the portrayal of Jane in fiction and popular culture has significantly contributed to her lasting infamy. Works such as The Other Boleyn Girl and the film adaptation have perpetuated the image of Jane as a scheming, vindictive figure who was instrumental in the downfall of Anne and George. These fictional accounts, while they're engaging and dramatic, of course, and we love them, can often blur the lines between fact and fiction, leading to a distorted understanding of historical figures and events. Recent historians have emphasized the importance of distinguishing between the historical accounts and the fictional portrayals when examining Jane Boleyn's life and actions. By revisiting primary sources and challenging the long-held assumptions, they demonstrate the dangers of relying on pop culture to shape our understanding of history. And their work serves as a reminder of the need for critical engagement 
with the historical narratives and the value of rigorous research in uncovering a more nuanced view of the past. The reevaluation of Jane Boleyn's reputation highlights the broader importance of revisiting and reassessing the lives and actions of other historical figures. A more balanced and in-depth examination of primary sources can challenge traditional narratives and provide new insights into the complexities of the past. This process of historical reassessment not only applies to Jane, but also to other figures who have been similarly maligned or misunderstood. For example, recent scholarship has challenged the portrayal of Anne Boleyn herself, offering a more balanced perspective on her life and actions. And of course, Thomas Cromwell himself, famously with Wolf Hall, he's often depicted as a ruthless and calculating villain. He's been reevaluated by historians, not just Wolf Hall, but also Dermot McCulloch, who present a more complex and nuanced understanding of his role in the Tudor court. I mean, it's like, guess what, people? These people were human and had good sides and bad sides, just like us, right? How amazing to think about. Nobody's just all good and nobody's just all bad. We're all just human. That's what we are. So for now, we're going to stop it here. We're all just human. Anyway, hop on into the Tutor Learning Circle, tutorlearningcircle.com, to discuss this and all other things Tutor. It's a social network just for Tutor history nerds. I will have sources, articles, books, and stuff you can read about Jane on the website. We'll do englandcast.com slash Jane Boleyn, englandcast.com slash Jane Boleyn. Like I said, Adrian Dillard's going to be at TudorCon. So you could read her book um, to get up to speed on these different viewpoints of Jane Boleyn. So I'd love to know, what's your view of Jane? Has it changed recently because you've read a book like Adrian's? What do you think about this whole reassessment of historical figures in general? I would love to know. Let me know. And remember, you can learn more about TudorCon, September 8th through 10th. Get all the details at englandcast.com slash TudorCon. Thanks so much for listening, and I will talk with you again soon. Have a great couple of weeks. Blow northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind. Sully Sam Lee's on sea, men's full maiden of me.